Head of a man. First. Forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your priests. Compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your law. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from the statute. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts, preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true, all, all your righteous laws are eternal. Uh, good deal. Great stuff there. And we have, let's see, I got to a couple prayer requests. Uh, Luke is 24 years old, and he's got, uh, I'm sorry, I think his name is Robbie. Um, and he's got leukemia. Yeah, 24 years old. And... Um, uh, I didn't write down the name, but I think it's Rob Robbie, if I remember that right. And then we got Oregon fires, which are still way out of control over there, and they asked that we continue to pray for that. And then one of our friends, I, I didn't ask if I could mention his name, but one of our friends that many of us know is having skin cancer removal here, and uh, so we want to keep him in prayer. And then um, uh, all I can say is it's Mike. He'll be mad if I say any more than that. Mike's birthday today. So happy birthday, Mike. I know he's watching. I won't say any more than that because then he'll be all, I'll get an angry email. I told you not to say anything. So there's lots of mics in the world. So we'll just leave it at that. Um, okay, then we'll read the Chicago Statement of Faith number 16 today. We affirm, what if I read 16? No, I didn't. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church church's faith throughout its history. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church's faith throughout its history. We deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism or is a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism, which sounds just like liberals, higher criticism, critics of the Bible. They come in and they say this and that. That was never a doctrine and you know nobody ever taught uh, inerrancy and they say that this has always been a tenet of the, the church, always, is that people have said that the Bible is inerrant, it is without error. If Jesus said it was, then that's where it began, and everybody since then has said that. What is it, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, quote it, go ahead. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's proper for teaching, rebuke, teaching. Proper rebuke for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God might be uh, perfectly furnished into all good words. Very good. Okay, so you got that. So, and there you go. 2 Timothy 3.16 itself claims inerrancy, if you just think it through. So there you go. Wonderful article. I have no problem or disagreement with that at all. And then one more thing before we pray is to read this day in uh, church history. So we'll get that done very quickly, and we'll get into Romans. July 26, he never gave up. William Wilberforce was born to affluence in Hull, England in 1759. His schooling began at the Hull Grammar School, where he came under the influence of two brothers, Headmaster Joseph Milner and teacher Isaac Milner. Isaac used to lift the small boy onto a table so that the other students could listen to him read. After just two years in school, William lost his father and was sent to live with his aunt, a staunch Methodist. By 14, Wilberforce had already developed a social conscience, and he wrote a letter to the local newspaper of the evils of the slave trade. He completed his education at St. John's College, 
Cambridge, where he largely wasted his time. However, in 1780, he was elected to Parliament, where he became a supporter and confidant of William Pitt the Younger, the British Prime Minister. Pitt persuaded Wilberforce to focus his efforts on the abolition of slavery. In 1785, Wilberforce was looking for someone with whom to tour Europe when he ran into Isaac Milner, now a tutor at Cambridge. On impulse, he invited Milner on the expense-paid trip. Had Wilberforce known that Milner was a committed Christian, he would not have extended the invitation. As Wilberforce and Milner traveled together, they began arguing about religion. The arguments started to dissipate as they read together The Rise and Fall of Religion in the Soul by Philip Doddridge, an evangelical English pastor. By the end of the trip, Wilberforce had given intellectual assent to many of the teachings of the Bible, but once back home, he returned to his politics and put religion on a back burner. The next year, Wilberforce took Isaac Milner on another tour of Europe. This time, they studied the Greek New Testament together. Wilberforce later said, I now fully believe the gospel and was persuaded that if I died at any time, I should perish everlastingly. <clears throat> Wilberforce was miserable, realizing that he must choose between Christ and the world, but he wanted both. Needing someone to talk to, <clears throat> excuse me, he went to see his boyhood hero, John Newton, the former slave trader who now at 60 was a London pastor and the author of Amazing Grace. On December 7th, 1785, he left John Newton's home with the decision settled. He had chosen Christ and committed himself to being God's man in politics. Wilberforce became the leader of a group of wealthy Anglican evangelicals who lived mainly in the hamlet of Clapham, three miles from London. They became known as the Clapham sect. Although they were in no sense a sect, they were more like a close family determined to change the world for Jesus. The group included an amazing galaxy of talent, the Governor General of India, the Chairman of the East India Company, the Under Secretary for the Colonies, and a leading attorney. In intimates of the group who did not have or did not live in Clapham included Isaac Milner, Greenville Sharp, and Charles Simeon. Together they formed a remarkable fraternity unique in British history. They determined which wrongs needed to be righted and then delegated to each person the work he could best perform for their mutual goals. <clears throat> the first great achievement of Wilberforce and his friends was the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. But the abolition of slavery itself proved tougher goal to achieve. On 26 July 1833, at the age of 73, Wilberforce was on his deathbed. Late that evening, he received word that the Emancipation Act freeing the slaves of the British Empire was assured of passing. His final political goal had been reached. Three days later, he died. In the United States, or if the United States had not declared its independence from England in the Revolutionary War, slavery would have ended in America in 1833 without the Civil War. Reflection, it took 46 years for William Wilberforce to achieve his goal of abolishing slavery in the British Empire. Has God called you to a cause? If you feel discouraged because things seem to be moving slowly in spite of your efforts, remember, Wilberforce, and don't give up. Don't get discouraged and give up, for we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appointed time. That's Galatians 6, verse 9. So there you go. Kind of reminds me of the story of James Strong, who did Strong's uh, analytical or uh, yeah, analytical concordance of the Bible is uh, took him. I think they said 33 years to compile it. Absolutely amazing. Every single word, 
you know, one word at a time, the Hebrew with definitions and explanations and, you know, the Hebrew and Greek and uh, it's marvelous. And so it took them 33 years and then they are now able to do it on a computer in one hour. Wow. One hour they can make a concordance wow. of the Bible. Wow. And when he heard that, he killed himself. Oh, <laughs> okay, that didn't happen. He was dead long before computers came about. Anyway, great stuff. We'll say a quick prayer and get into Romans. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for... Uh, well, yeah, we thank you for these great men of God who uh, have been in the past and were willing to uh, do wonderful things over long, long periods of time. And we get frustrated if something doesn't get done in a day or two. So uh, forgive us of our impatience in this modern world and give us a heart to be patient over issues that sometimes do take a long time to get resolved. And uh, we would pray for patience with the people in this world that don't want to see things resolved and that we would uh, be able to overcome their their uh, antagonism towards the Christian faith and towards right morals in this nation and in other nations around the world. And Lord, we do pray for all the people that were mentioned a moment ago on the prayer list. And we want to say a prayer of thanks and praise for um, Mike, who's having a birthday today as well. And we want to thank you for the people in the Philippines who are attending from the Superior Word over there in Iligan City. And so, Lord, we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we have um, Romans 12, verse 21 is where we're at today. Last, yeah, last of the chapter. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, and I had not had mine open, so I'm not even going to bother checking to see if it's closed here or not. I'm sure it's probably closed, but give me a second here. Okay, overcome evil with good. That's a tough one. I got to tell you, that's a tough one in today's world. Paul finishes chapter 12 of Romans with this verse. When we allow ourselves to be overcome by evil, we are the ones who lose the battle. No doubt about it. It's like when you get into an argument with somebody and you start yelling invectives at them, you've lost the battle. All right. Stay cool. You know, use uh, logic and uh, you can usually shame people just by using common sense when they're the ones that will get mad at you and they'll lose their cool. But Try not to do that. Anyway, this is perfectly obvious when observing the acts of an instigator. As he needles and pushes, he will delight in his perverse exploits. As one falls prey to him, the smug satisfaction of victory can be evidenced on his face. He has overcome and feels vindicated by the reduction of you, his foe, to his own depraved level. Once again, you're on Facebook and you're arguing with somebody, there's a point where you suddenly come down to their level. Uh, the two Proverbs that are side by side that I, I may misquote them, but uh, don't argue with a fool lest you become like him. And the next one says, argue with a fool unless or lest he become exalted in his own eyes. In other words, there's a point where you argue with somebody because you don't want them to think that they have achieved mastery over you. But you don't want to continue arguing with them because eventually you will look like the fool that he already is. So uh, you got to use wisdom. It's not always easy, but you can very quickly find yourself on Facebook in an argument with a fool. And the next thing you know, you were a fool. So uh, you got to be careful with that. But uh, uh, you do want to defend what's right. You do want to defend sound theology. And sometimes it's just beyond pointless to keep going after one or two posts because you know that this is the type of person that we're talking about anyway so uh, however if you stand against him and continue to put forth blessings and goodness there will eventually be a vindication of your approach in one of a couple of ways 
One is that the instigator will simply release a stream of anger and profanity and depart, which we all see from time to time, or he may concede that you have been right in your actions. Either way, good has overcome the evil. An excellent place to see this in action is on news talk shows where a political issue is debated or listening to various talk radio hosts will allow the same opportunity. Those hosts who continuously put forth a stream of positive thoughts and encouragements will inevitably win their debate. If you listen to Rush Limbaugh, he never gets angry at people. He will shut them down if they continue being belligerent, but he always wins his debate because he remains cool, he remains level-headed, and so there you go. Eventually, opponents don't even bother entering the dialogue because they see that the host won't be shaken. However, for those hosts who allow themselves to get rattled, those who engage them will continue to needle them until that comes about. In these cases, even the stronger or morally right argument is held by the host, the debate is still lost. When you lose your cool, you've lost the debate. This is what Paul is speaking about in any life situation, and he's particularly speaking about religious matters. When we allow evil to overcome, then only evil has come. But when we allow, when we overcome evil with good, then good has prevailed and the enemy is silenced. So everybody got that? I mean, it's, it's a tough line. It's very hard to do if you're not one to keep your cool, which I'm usually not in an argument. It's better not to get into the argument at all because, you know, I just will end up losing my cool and there's no point in doing that. So best thing to do is just make your point, make a second point, and then back out before you're stuck in it. Um, seeing as how I see somebody walking right now, it reminds me there's a yellow bucket over there. It's full of longans, which are very similar to lychee. If you like lychee, you'll like these. Okay, they're just a little smaller, but they're very, very good. Take all you want. And Hidako just brought in some mangoes as well. So before you leave, make sure if you want some fruit to take home, take them home. All right, got a life application for you. One of the most difficult tasks of all is to know when to throw out a blessing in order to fend off an attack. As a stable, reasonable thinker, you will always win the argument if you keep your emotions in check and allow grace, not angry emotion, to rule your situation. Learn this thought from Paul and remember it when you face such pressure. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. That's Colossians 4 verse 6. So there you go, little uh, lesson from Paul with another lesson from Paul. And um, we'll go on to chapter 13. I can't wow. believe it. Wow, we are really almost done with Romans now. I know. Chapter 13. Should be done. Get class. Yes. <clears throat> Mission, submission to the authority. 13.1. Um, everyone must submit themselves to the governing authority. For there is no authority except that God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Okay, you know, this is a really tough one too, folks. This is tough, and it's tough to know when to say we're ending this. Okay, was the Revolutionary War correct? Was it not? I mean, you can debate that all day long, and people will come up with their points of to why it was correct, why it wasn't correct, etc. But this is what the Bible says, and so at least from the surface verse, we just have to analyze it, and we have to be obedient to it. Paul now begins, I got something in my throat that just won't go away today. Paul now, no, I just had water and it didn't help. Paul now begins a new chapter and a new direction of thought. His statement in verse 1 is clear and concise. 
It is prescriptive in nature. That's one thing we want to remember about Paul's writings. You know, when Paul says, I was shipwrecked, is that prescriptive or descriptive? He's not telling you to go out and be shipwrecked as well. Okay, so you have to use common sense with Paul's writings. What would be really nice is if sometime I have the time and I just went through every single verse in the New Testament and put a P or a D next to it so that we could have a PD Bible so that people would know you apply this to your life or this is something that because, you know, people, if they know, if people understood the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive, we would not have 99.5372% of the error in Christianity that we have, especially dealing with the book of, no, Acts. Acts is all descriptive. I mean, there's a couple of verses in there which you must apply, which we would say prescriptive. You prescribe them for your doctrine. Very, very few. Most of them are describing what happened. They are one-time events, or they are simply things that were being said by people that are completely taken out of context by people. Completely. And if you use Acts in a descriptive manner, your theology is going to be very poor. It's going to be extremely poor. It is not to be taken in that way. Paul's letters are prescriptive mostly, but there are descriptive verses. But if you remember the difference between this is describing something, it does not apply as something I am to do. This is prescribing something for me to do. If you can remember that when you're reading the Bible, that will help you immensely in your doctrine. I'm talking about actual doctrine where you apply it to your life and where you talk to other people in a coherent manner. Because if you start pulling things out of the book of Acts and citing that on Facebook saying, well, blah, 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 you're only making yourself look uneducated. Acts is not the book to cite when you're telling somebody doctrine. It isn't. Okay. The what? Oh, yeah. The five rules of, uh, of interpretation that you should apply at all times. Is it descriptive? Is it prescriptive? And the last three are what is the context? What is the context? And what is the context? Context is the most important thing, and people take everything out of context. They just rip it out of context, and they cite things, and that will hugely harm your ability to have sound theology. Keep things in context. Who is being spoken to? Under what dispensation? Oh, by the way, talking about dispensations, we have the last book of Esther this weekend, and I'm telling you what. It is marvelous. So uh, what is Esther pointing to? What is it teaching us? It's all going to be wrapped up. It's going to be a long sermon, so the, the prophecy update is going to be shortened a little bit this week, and we're going to start the sermon not at 1130, but whenever Sergio's uh, video is ended. I don't care if it's 1115. If people show up late, that's fine. I'm not going to stay here all afternoon for a 30-page long sermon. So anyway, um, if you're not here at 1130, or if you come at 1130 for the sermon, you may be coming in late. Just want to let you know that in advance. Okay, um, where was I now? Um, uh, 13.1, Paul now begins a new chapter in a new direction of thought. His statement in verse 1 is clear and concise. It is prescriptive in nature, meaning it is pre a prescribed directive. It is not a wish. It is a command, okay? The second half of the verse will explain the first half. Afterwards, he will give obvious conclusions based on his comments here, Okay. Verse 1 begins with the words, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Okay, very clear and concise. If you're in the Philippines, your governing authority is President Duarte, and then he's got his cabinet, and however the government structure is of the Philippines. When you're in uh, Iran, you have the Ayatollah, and you've got, these are the governments that you live under. They, it, it's not optional, depending on what country you're in. Well, I want to be in America. You're not. 
you were born in Iran, this is what you are obedient to. If they say that women are to wear those crazy things on their head, that's what they're to do. Okay, and this is one of the things when these these people go to like Iran. I'm talking about emissaries and uh, you know people that are visiting on government whatever, and they say I'm not going to wear that hijab. That's their country. If that's what they want, and you don't want to wear that thing, don't go to that country. Absolutely right. If you go to North Korea and you do something wrong and you end up in North Korean jail then you probably should not have gone there in the first place. That is their country. This is one of the errors of military people that you see when you're in the military. You go over there and the guys run around like it's America. It's not. I was in Japan and I saw people do things and they ended up in Japanese prison because they did not obey the laws that were governing them in Japan. Now we have what's called the Status of Forces Agreement. Status of Forces Agreement says certain crimes will be prosecuted by the US military. But if somebody rapes a Japanese girl, that is prosecuted in Japan. If they murder somebody in Japan, that is prosecuted in Japan. And then they give them the death penalty and that's the end of them. This is the way of the world. So you're not immune to the country that you're in. You abide by the laws of the governing authority, okay? God's people are in this world here and now. Though we belong to a higher authority and a higher rule which exists, it is a spiritual kingdom at this point. Until Christ returns and sets up his kingdom here on earth, he has appointed us to live within his spiritual kingdom while at the same time living under human authorities. This is how it is set up. The thing that really, really bothers me is Christians that will not engage in politics. And they say, well, I'm of the kingdom of Christ and I don't engage in politics. And that's, that's what I would call narcissistic pietism. I'm better than you because I am in Christ's kingdom. And it's in uh, it, what is implicitly saying that you're not as good as me because you're living in this world. We live in this world. Jesus said, render unto Caesar, okay? And he was talking to Israel, but they had to do that and they were God's people. That was God's established people. And yet they were to render under Caesar, unto Caesar what they were to render under Caesar, right? And to God, to God. So people that do not engage in politics of this nation, if they are a part of this nation, are only harming the own cause that they believe in. If they believe in Christian values, then they are harming the Christian values by not engaging in them. If you don't go vote for a Christian, guess what? You're voting against a Christian. Somebody else is taking that vote. So you have to engage in whatever government you're in up to the limit that the government allows. You can't go in and overthrow your government and say, well, I don't like what he said. And I understand what I'm saying. You participate to whatever extent the government allows. Okay. So um, until Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on earth, he has appointed us to live within his spiritual kingdom while at this same time living under human authorities. And because of this, we are directed to be subject to the governing authorities. This means that we are to be obedient to the laws of the land, whatever they may be. But there is an obvious conclusion that we can make. If we are under the rule of Christ, the highest authority that exists, and a governing authority under which we live issues a rule which is contrary to the precepts of the Bible, we must disobey that rule of that lower government. That is what we must do. We cannot abide by a rule that is... Now, here's an example. Maybe I give it here. I, I don't want to give it then... Uh, um, yeah, okay, I, I don't think I see it in the rest of my comments. In America, abortion is legal. Nothing we can do about it. We can work within the government to undo what the government has done. 
We elect the right people, we get the right Supreme Court nominations, and eventually abortion may go away, okay? That's how we work within that system, all right? But we do not go and shoot abortion doctors, okay? That is against the law, okay? That's not something we can do. But further, this is the point I'm making about this particular verse. If the government says there is mandatory abortions after the third child, you must disobey that because that is against God's rule. You cannot murder a human being and be right with God. So in that instance, you must disobey the law. You don't have a right to shoot abortion doctors. You can work against what is clearly wrong morally in the abortion issue. But if the government imposes mandatory abortions and you're a Christian, then rightfully you should say, I am not going to obey this unjust law. Okay, better for you to go to jail and to be in jail because of your stand for God than to disobey God in the process. Okay, and that's why people, Christians, are in jail all over the world today. It's because they live under oppressive governments and they will not abide by the particular laws which are contrary to God's law. Okay, if you're in an Islamic country and they decide all Christians have to renounce their faith or be executed, then be executed. That's the way it works, okay? That's just how it works. It's not something to debate. It's not something to argue. It's you are to put God's law first always, okay? No different in how individual states are set up under the overarching federal rule. If America, for example, has a set law and a state issues an order which violates the federal law, which we see all the time in liberal states now, anyway, then we must obey the federal law over the state law. The same is true with our obligation to God. The precept is seen explicitly by the apostles who faced the high priest in the council in Jerusalem. When they were given a directive contrary to what God would have them do, their answer was that, please God rather than man. That's right, we have to obey God rather than men, or please God, okay? However, supposing that the government under which we live has issued nothing contrary to our duties to God, we are expected to be in submission to them, and the reason is given. This is what Paul says. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. That means whatever government you are on in this world was appointed by God. If you're in Iran, he chose for Iran to have that sort of a government. He made sure that that would come about. The 70 nations that stemmed out in the table of nations became all of the nations of the world, and what is being done now is contrary to God's plan. The Open Borders Initiative, not having, uh, uh, you know, moving people without legal permission from place to place, what we're seeing is actually a violation of God's plan. He determined that these nations would exist. What's happening in the world now is a revert back to what we would consider Babylon. There was Babylon, there was one government, they spoke one language, they were all united and they were united in a way that was contrary to God's will. And he separated the nations, and that has been his way of dealing with humanity ever since then. That is the way that he is ordained in this dispensation and until Christ comes to rule the world, okay? What is being done in the world right now is trying to get back to Babylon. What does Google call their translator? Babel. Babel, that's right. I mean, everything that is happening in this world is to get us back to one language where everybody understands each other. There is freedom of movement, and so everybody can work against God's purposes. That's what's happening in the world. It is it's just a, a, a perfect example of what's happening right now. One government, one religion, etc. It's It's all being done, right? Okay, so um, there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. 
Time and again, the Bible notes that it is God who sets up kingdoms and brings them low. You find it in the book of Daniel. You find it in the book of Acts. You find it all over the place. Okay. He directs the course of nations according to an infinitely wise plan. He also directs where we will be born and live out our years. That's found in Acts chapter 17. Let me take you there. That's one of the verses that uh, I absolutely love and appreciate. It's a descriptive verse, but it tells us what is going on, how the mechanics of what God is doing are going on. Take us to Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. It says, and he has made from one blood or one man every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. This is what God has ordained and this is what he has done. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In other words, this applies to individuals, it applies to nations. That nation would seek the Lord and maybe find him. If you're a united Babel force, you're not going to be seeking the Lord at all. You're going to try to usurp what God has done. For in him, meaning in God, we live and move and have our being. As also one of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. There you go. God has ordained these things. He set these things up. He has planned it out. And what do we do? We continue to try to work against it. You know, that's one of the things about the United States. The United States has gone in and has conquered dozens of nations. And it's always given the nation back to itself. When we took over Japan, we could have said, you are now all going to speak English. You're going to go to American schools and you're going to eat apple pie on the 4th of July. We could have done that. It was an unconditional surrender. And we didn't do that. We understood as a nation, they are a people group. They have their own ethnicity. They have their own culture. They have their own traditions. And we gave them the dignity of that. But we established a constitution for them under MacArthur that was something that would bring them in line with the other nations of the world. So they wouldn't be taking out other nations of the world, killing hundreds of thousands of people, etc. But we gave them their nation back because we understood that that is the way it is supposed to work. The same thing happened in the Philippines. We went into the Philippines, right? The Spanish had it. We took it over. They st still speak Tagalog if they want. They can speak Spanish if they want. They speak English if they want, right? But that is what we did with them. And you see that every time we go into a country, we don't say you're now this part of this country. Even Guam, it's a protectorate of ours, but we've given them choices. They can be a, a state if they want. They can vote for that or they can be their own thing. But they drive on our side of the road. They use our money but they have their own culture. We didn't go in and take that away from them. I'm not saying that America did everything great. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say that there's this understood thing that these are a different people group. They're entitled to what God has established for them, okay? So therefore, because he established these things, we are bound under them and are expected to be in adherence to what he has ordained. The life application here, regardless of where you live, and whether you agree with the policies of your governing authorities or not, and I assure you, quite often we don't, right? I mean, how many times do we argue against what they're doing? You are expected to be obedient to them. That's what just, you know, this is one of the things that just makes it so bad, is when you see these people that are like out in California, and there are laws that we are supposed to do something. This is what the federal government has mandated, and they pass sanctuary city laws, and then they get arrested, and what do they do? They go and they beat up the police policemen, and they gang up on each other. There's lawlessness. That is not what we are to do. We're to say that person has violated a law, put him in the back of the police cruiser, take him down, book him, and then find him guilty and put him in prison or execute him or whatever his punishment is. We, we're not doing that anymore. And well, this is contrary. The what? 
our laws are being That's right. That's exactly what I'm saying. I don't know why we don't come against them. No, I, I, mean, I don't know. And I we will eventually have a civil war if it doesn't change. We will. If it doesn't change, there will be a civil war again because we just cannot have this. It's lawlessness. Anyway, um, the exception is that you are never to violate your obligations to God in order to adhere to what a government has ordained. Never. And how can you know when such a violation of God's rule is directed? That's right. Read your Bible. If you know what this says, then you can know when I am going to take the right action at the right time. Okay. And once again, how do you know when that time is? It's because you take the verse in context, right? And then to check it again, make sure that you're reading the context properly. Keep it in context. If it's in context, you will not be making a pretext and finding yourself on the wrong side of the law for a bad reason. Okay, everything in context, but this is where you go to find out what is God's law, what is your standard in this world that you live above everything else. But after that, you obey the law of the land. If you're in a, 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 a CS to key, they keep doing it. You know, when I was a kid, used to be able to drive down Midnight Pass at 125 miles an hour was the posted <laughs> speed limit. Okay, it wasn't, but it was it was 40 miles an hour. And then what did they do? They somebody gets these buggies, you know, that they want to oh, drive yeah. on the road. And so they ask, we want to have this section of Midnight Pass changed to 35. And so now it's 35. And then what do they do? They say, well, we want this section 25. And so we keep going lower and lower. And pretty soon we're going to be driving at five miles an hour to get anywhere. It's, oh, wow. it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And so I hate to admit it, but when I go through those sections, I'm usually going 40 miles an hour. And if I get a ticket, whose fault is it? It's my fault. I'm not obeying the law, but I'm also not in agreement with that law. So I'm actually not doing what the Bible says. Okay, so don't follow my lead. Follow what this says and what I'm teaching you, not what I do. When you see Charlie going 40 and a 35, go 35, okay? And I'll take the ticket. I'll take the ticket. I just, it makes me so mad. We used to be able to just go any speed we wanted around there. But yes, it, it was wonderful. What? That's the, any speed. Any, yeah, it, like I said, it was 125 when I was a kid, and cars could only go 85 back then. So, okay, none of that's true. 13-2, go ahead. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority Ooh. is rebelling against what God has instituted. Absolutely. When I rebel at 40 miles an hour and at 35, I'm actually rebelling against what God has constituted. Because he has these people in those positions to make these decisions because they run the government. They know what's best for the people, you think. Anyway, and I know they don't, but... Wait a minute, Carl. Yes. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I took a breath. Was, oh, yeah, no, don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and those who do so will be will bring judgment on themselves. That's called the ticket in the back pocket, right? Okay. Or that's called the uh, whatever. I mean, you're right. You're bringing judgment on yourselves if you were in a place where they uphold the laws that they have passed. If you have a law in place and it's not being upheld, guess what? There's a problem with that governmental structure and it needs to be cured. It needs to be. That is a problem with the government, and it just allows the individuals to run rampant. All right. Anyway, Paul now begins. Um, oh, we're in 13.2. Yeah, okay. Uh, this verse begins with, therefore, as an introduction to the consequences of disobeying the prescription of the previous verse. It's a prescribed verse, okay, where all people are to be subject to the governing authorities. When we fail in this regard, we can only expect the governing authorities to respond with force they bear against the malefactors. 
That's what you expect. Okay, you do wrong, somebody is going to use force. It may be just simply pulling you over with their car and writing you a ticket. Okay, or it may be something more. Okay, whoever, the word whoever is given as an all-encompassing roundup of those who would subvert the duly established authority, which was appointed by God. By stating whoever, let me read it again so you have it, therefore, whoever resists, okay? Whoever, Paul is ensuring that we note that believers are not exempt from this statement. This is why these people that say, I'm a part of the kingdom of God and I don't vote because I think it's inappropriate. I belong to a higher kingdom. Well, guess what? You drive the speed limit, don't you? Because if you don't, you're going to get a ticket and that governing authority doesn't have any authority over you. Of course they do. You live in this world, you are set into this world by God, wherever you are, whether it's the Philippines or whether it's Mongolia or whether it's Sarasota, Florida, you are to abide by the laws in that land and you are to be a responsible citizen to the laws in that land. And if that means getting them changed by entering the government as a Christian, that's what you do. Because anybody that says that I don't vote because it's not Christian is not thinking their Bible through at all. They're not thinking it through at all. They're just trying to be pietistic in your presence, and they're trying to look more holy than you. And that is totally inappropriate. Absolutely. You just simply look at this. That doesn't mean that you have to vote. But if you don't, the consequences of not voting are yours. Abortion is one of the issues that I bring up again and again and again. Somebody has to speak against that issue. Who is it that's going to do it? It's not going to be the people that are in favor of it, right? The only people that are going to do it are the people that have the right moral base to start with. And there are very few of them out there. And their 99.5% begin with a C and end with an N and have Rishton in the middle, right? They're Christians, okay? So it's our responsibility to do these things, all right? So by stating whoever, Paul is ensuring that we note that believers are not exempt from the statement. If we think that because we are a part of Christ's kingdom, that we are not subject to earthly rule and authority, we are only deluding ourselves. And so whoever, including believers, resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, as Paul says. Why? Because verse 1 told us so. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. There you go. Verse 1 told us, he's explaining it now. If we fight against our God-appointed rulers, even if it's the Ayatollah, of, he's a Muslim, right? God set him in that place for his purposes. Believe me, he did. He said he did. He did. When he says he sets up kings and he brings down kings, it is because he is God. He's got it figured out how it's going to happen. He's got it figured out when it's going to happen. But if there's a Muslim in charge of land, it's because the Lord has allowed that in that particular part of the land. And if you don't see that circling around one country over there, then you're not paying attention, right? Because he has got all of these foes and all of these people that are against his people in one little spot of land right there. He has done that for his purposes to bring the world to the place of judgment that it deserves. The end times judgment is going to come about and he's doing it by using one little country in the middle of all of those other countries. He did it with America when he established it. He did it with the, uh, what do you call it, the British Empire when they were ruling, right? No place on the world, what is it, the sun never sets over the British Empire. Well, now it does, I think. Maybe it doesn't still, I don't know. But everything was ordained by God to lead us to the end of days where the world will be judged because it has turned so far away from God. He has orchestrated it. Ab absolutely, this is what the Bible teaches, okay? So if we fight against our God-appointed rulers, we are fighting against what he has ordained. 
it could not be laid out more clearly. And such resistance, as Paul says, will bring judgment on themselves. The word for judgment here is the word krima. It's a very common word. It is used at times for condemnation. However, it should be noted that civil disobedience by a believer doesn't mean that they will lose their salvation. Never does. That does not equate that, okay? We can be civilly disobedient. We can get locked up in jail. We can get executed for doing something against our government. It does not mean that you have lost your salvation. This isn't the type of condemnation which is spoken of. A sealed believer is saved despite such wrongdoing. Guess what it says? Let me take you here very quickly. So you remember this verse. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, I'm still in 1 Corinthians. Stop turning backwards, Charlie. 5 verse 19, it says there, I'll go back to 18. Now all things are of God, all things, including governments, right? Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, speaking of believers, reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And that ministry, he's going to explain it now. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are not being imputed our trespasses. Another version of the Bible says, not counting men's sins against them. We are not being imputed sin. How do we know that? Because the wages of sin is death, and we have been granted eternal life because of Jesus Christ. If the wages of sin is death, and he is still counting sins against us, then guess what? We do not have eternal life. When we die, we will be forever separated from God. God is not counting our sins against us, so we can't make these category mistakes. When you are saved, in other words, you are saved. You are sealed. It is done. Anybody that says that you can lose your salvation has not thought through this issue, and it is a very clear issue. It is very concise, and it is very precise. You cannot lose your salvation. You can lose your joy, and you can lose your life. Go out and shoot somebody right now if you want borrow my gun, it's over there in the pulpit, and what's going to happen? They're going to arrest you, and in Florida, we still have a death penalty. Old Sparky is probably going to catch up with you, right? That is what happens. You can, But you're not going to lose your salvation over it. God has sealed you with his spirit. I would not recommend you do that. That was a, uh, what do you call it? It was an example. It was not hyperbole. Thank you. It was not what I recommend. So please don't think that way. I'm making an example that you are a Christian. God is not counting your sins against you. But don't do that. Okay, please don't do that. All right, and here we've got that on YouTube. And somebody on YouTube is going to cut that little thing out. And they're going to say, listen to this guy. Oh, I could just see that now. Oh, yeah, boy. And then they send it up to YouTube and get me banned over something I'm using as an example. Whatever. It doesn't matter what you say anymore, though, because you know that I've said it in the prophecy updates. They now have videos that they can actually make anybody say anything. Right. I could take a picture of Laura back there, right? And I could put, I'm, I'm just saying, you're sitting there not making any noise. You haven't said anything, and that's why I'm picking on you. She hasn't said a word, but I could have her actually speaking, and I could have her actually saying something that she never said. So it doesn't matter what you say anymore. If somebody wants to get you, they are going to get you. And it's just the way it is. So anyway, that's why I picked on you, because you're very quiet. You're you're very, very quiet back there. Uh, anyway, okay, so... Um, Seal believer is saved despite such wrongdoing. It is rather speaking of condemnation, what we're talking about this issue here, within the framework of the society up to and maybe including a sentence of death. Hence the example that I gave you, which I do not want you to do. Okay. <laughs> when we do wrong, 
we can only expect whatever punishment is handed out for wrongdoing. And even when we don't do wrong, if the society sees our actions as wrong, judgment may still come, right? The apostles found this out. Most of them were beaten, they were tortured, and they were executed for their faith. The same is true with countless millions of Christians since their time. As I said, I think it was a prophecy update, or I don't remember what I said, maybe it was in one of my daily devotionals, that over a million Armenians were killed by the Turks just at the beginning of the last sentence, a million people. And the world doesn't want to admit it. Why? Because Turkey is an important country, and so they're, they're afraid to say that this actually occurred. Well, I'll say it. These people were butchered by the Turks. That's what happened, right? This is because they were Christians nonetheless, and people don't want to admit those things. But this is what goes on in the world, okay? So, um, but Peter, he was martyred for his faith, says this concerning suffering. Let me take you to 2 Peter. And he says in verse 1, 19, and so we, oh, that's not what I want. 2 Peter 1, verse 19. Well, that's not the, the one I want. Maybe I want 1 Peter 1, 19. Let me check it really quickly. I Sometimes I do that. My fat fingers will type the wrong verse and then... Uh, uh, let me see here. Um, no, that's not it either. Something about suffering in one of Peter's, uh, uh, yeah, he said something here. Let me see. Promise of liberty. No, three. Let me go to 19 here. No. Okay. Anyway, to Peter something, he talks about suffering and he says that uh, uh, how we should take it. But anyway, forget that. Sorry about that. I, I always give the wrong, let me make a note on that. I always give the wrong that's my fat fingers, and people catch this. That's why people like to read my uh, my devotionals, and then they send, you know, you got the wrong reference again. I do it all the time. What? Well, I know. That's because you probably don't look at the references, but a lot of people do. What happens is I'll be, t I'll be looking at my Bible, right? And it'll say at the top, Romans 12, 7, right? But it's got 13 and 14 here. And so I'll be looking at 13, 7 or 14, 7 on the Bible. But I'm looking at the top, and I just, so anyway... Don't worry about it. Peter speaks about suffering, and Burke's going to eventually find it, and he'll call it out. So we'll let him handle that. Life application. At times, the values of our leaders are much different than those that we as Christians hold to. Okay, and we see that. We have saw that certainly for the past eight years. However, if their decisions don't force us to act in a manner contrary to our faith, we must be obedient to their rules. Okay, that's what the Bible says. Me going over the speed limit is not correct. Okay, sometimes I do it. I don't do it all the time, but sometimes I do it. I'm in a hurry. I need to get somewhere. I'm late, whatever. It's not correct. We are supposed to abide by the rules of the land that we're in. That's, that's the standard. That is what God expects of us. This is right, and it is pleasing in the sight of God who ordained those leaders to be over us. Okay, if you don't like your leaders and you have a way of getting them out legally, then follow that avenue. If you don't, then you're just going to have to live under them, and you're going to have to put up with whatever comes and like possibly. what's that I'm sorry. go no go ahead is it possibly 419 says, oh. therefore let those who suffer according to the yes read it. their soul begin again therefore let those who suffer according to the will of god commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator absolutely so that's 1 peter 419 yes yes okay and see right there 1 peter 4 and then on the same page i have to Peter 1, and so that's what I did. So 1 Peter, go read that later and forgive my 1 Peter 4, verse 19. I do that all the time. That's what Peter said about suffering. Okay, I need to get that corrected someday. All right, 13.3, please. Yes. Uh, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, 
but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Okay, this one's a little different. I'm going to read it. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Close, but a little bit different. Oh, by the way, I don't have a gun in the pulpit today, so I, it can't be held against me anyway. That was an example. That's why I said that. It was an example. I didn't, I'm not going to go telling you to go do that and then have somebody actually go over there and get that. So okay. just, just so you know. That settles it. That's, that, <laughs> okay, 13.3. Paul's explanation of verse 1 continues here in verse 3. He makes a general proclamation concerning the state of rulers. This isn't intended as a complete evaluation of all rulers, some which are really truly crummy, wicked, or bent on evil. Rather, the general state of rule is one which is intended for the good of the societies, and rulers generally work for what they believe is that good, even if it is skewed or perverse. Everybody got that? Most rulers generally intend for the best for their society. But there is the old statement, absolute power. Absolutely corrupts. That's right, corrupts absolutely. Okay, there's a point where a ruler just has too much power and he goes over the deep end. Okay, and we see that in almost every facet of life. A person that's in Hollywood that is given absolute adoration becomes absolutely corrupt. I mean, it just happens with anything. You get somebody in absolute it inevitably turns their head in the wrong direction, okay? But for the most part, rulers generally want what's good for their people. It may be skewed, it may be perverse, but they want the best for their constituents, okay? That is what Paul is generally saying. Not always the case. We got some rulers in the world today that do not want the best for their people. This is a generalism, general idea that Paul is giving us out, okay? Well, what does the Bible say good becomes, in times good becomes evil, evil becomes good? Well, that's Isaiah chapter 1 where he says, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil who trade. What's that? Isaiah 520, I said one, didn't I? Let me go there then. And uh, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of 118, which says, come, let us reason together. Anyway, okay, Isaiah 520, hang on. See, we got a little scholar back there. She's out there yelling out. Isaiah 5, hang on a second here. Yeah, it's not an end times. It's just that it, it's the, the, the state of men all the time. It says here, um, yeah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, which is something Paul warned against just a couple verses ago, and prudent in their own sight. Okay, so there you go. That's that. Whereas what I was thinking of, and it just came to mind, and I'm glad you corrected me on that. Thank you. I was thinking of Isaiah 118, which is, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson they shall be as wool i don't know why that came into my mind with the verse you had but thank you for yeah i hate having the wrong burke is very good about bible verses i'm not i can analyze them but i'm not good about remembering the numbers that go with them so okay here we go um yeah bent on evil and uh, uh what is universally true is that god has ordained these rulers to be rulers and therefore his good end is being worked out through them even if they're bad rulers, even if they're doing bad things, he has ordained them to be there so that his good end will be worked out. And remember, as I said, we've got all of these countries that are around Israel, and a good end is going to come out of it. But there's going to be a lot of death. There's going to be a lot of heartache before that happens. But it is always the good that God is working towards. In the end, that is always what he's working towards. Yes? So, you live in the society, 
you should be obedient to it. And also vote. Right. Now, take this verse, though, and helps people say, well, wait, I'm in God's kingdom. He's going to pick whomever it is. So. Well, that's the same thing as saying that uh, uh, God picked my, my wife for me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. In the end, we have choices to make. Right. Everything comes down to that. And that, that becomes almost like the, uh, yeah, yeah uh, what do you call it? Um, the, uh, you know, Calvinism with choosing Christ or not choosing Christ or whether you're predestined or whether you're not. And, you know, in the end, we have choices to make. What is the answer to that question? God figures in our choices. If we didn't make the choice, then he did not figure that in. He knew that you wouldn't make it, and someday you're going to stand before him, and you're going to be accountable for not making the right choice. Okay? There's an individual thing that's going on with him, but he already knows what choices you're going to make, and he's got it all figured out. But that's the answer to that. What's that? I said it's very hard for some people to grasp. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it, Paul tells us to pray. Why would he even bother? Why even bother if what we're talking about here, that hypothetical that he just gave, if that is the case, then why bother at all? But Paul says that we are to pray. Jesus says that we are to pray. As a matter of fact, Paul says the prayer of the many, implying that when you have many people praying, it's going to have a greater effect. That's why we pray as a group. Instead of us just going home and saying our own little prayers, we all bow our heads and we say a prayer and we all agree to it if we agree to it, right? It's because God has factored that in. I will say something that is so bizarre. It's so bizarre that you'll think that's not possible. But I am certain that if you were to say, Paul's been dead for what, 2,000 years, 2,100 years, or we'll say 2,000 years, right? I would say that Paul, God is outside of time. And if somebody today was to pray for Paul's ministry, he would have factored that into Paul's ministry. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense to me because God is timeless. He is outside of time. So for me to say, Lord, I pray that you give Paul an abundant ministry is going to have an effect on something that happened 2,000 years ago because he is outside of time. I'm not telling you to do that because people will think you're absolutely crazy. But I'm saying that if you were to do that, I can see God accepting that prayer for Paul's ministry because he is not limited to the time that we are in okay so just so you know he factors all of these things in that's why we are told to pray otherwise there would be no point in there'd be no point in going and voting there'd be no point in choosing jesus and saying i receive jesus christ because he's already predestined you to be saved and so you don't have to do anything and why be a missionary why tell anybody about jesus just stay home and watch tv okay don't read your bible it's not necessary because you, he's already figured in the fact that you're saved and you don't need to have good doctrine, okay? Whatever, that's all crazy thinking, all of it. We are in this world and he has placed us in this world for a reason. And that reason is to do the things that he has instructed us in his word, which includes praying and receiving Jesus and all of these other things. Okay, so there you go with that. Um, uh, where was I? Um, the thought that such rulers are uh, not a terror to good works, but to evil, according to Paul, means that if the laws they lay out are obeyed, then one can expect peace from them. Saddam Hussein was a ruler who was generally considered corrupt, evil, and immensely brutal. But for those who were obedient, their lives were not usually ones of terror. They had big cities, they had people that you know went out and they had shopping malls and all other kinds of things, right? However, someone bucked the system and the rules he had in place, they were certainly expecting harsh judgment when brought to trial. Terror is a good word to describe their state, okay? The people that didn't want to obey, they were in terror. And so, although to be generally applied, Paul asks 
a question which should generally be considered. Do you want to be unafraid of the, the authority, Paul asks. Do you? Anybody here want to be afraid of the authority? No. Okay. This is to be taken as a rhetorical question with an obvious answer of yes, you want to be unafraid of the authority. Only a perverse person would want to be on the outside of the law. And though it's quite common, it is still the exception rather than the rule. Most people want to live peaceably. And so in response to this, he gives the correct attitude to bear. He says, do what is good and you will have praise from the same, meaning the ruling authority. Okay. Laws are in place for the proper working of society. Police are in place for proper adherence to the law or to arrest lawbreakers, unless you're in California. Courts are in place to try lawbreakers, and sentences are given under the law for the punishment of crimes and even the execution of criminals. By doing what is good, instead of arrest, trial, and punishment, one can accept praise and not condemnation, right? That all makes sense, but this is why do you think Paul includes all this in here? Because we know this in a societal level, don't we? It's because we have people that say, I'm in God's kingdom and I don't have to vote. Well, guess what? You're also in this world and you have to obey the speeding law. What's the difference between that and voting? And if you don't want to vote, don't vote. I'm not telling you that you have to vote, but you should because the alternative is that you are not helping the very cause that you claim that you proclaim, right? There you go. Anyway, uh, life application. Paul's words so far in Romans 13 are given for peaceable living. He wrote this epistle under a most corrupt and wicked leader, and yet they were applicable as general statements of living in any society, even one such as a bad Roman emperor named Nero. Nero. Yeah, absolutely. And guess what happened to Paul under Nero? He was martyred. That's right. They say he lost his head. Okay. And the same is true today. Whether we have a good leader or a bad one, we should endeavor to do what is good under their rule. You had something. I keep thinking about the Barnhouse wife driving him. I've told that here before. He said she always drove him and he would go over his notes and everything for the evening message, whatever he was preaching. And he says, I noticed that when it was 35, you went 35 and it got to 45 or 55, you always. And she says, Donald, I'm worshiping the Lord with my foot. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I, I always think about that when I come down Macintosh. You know, it's, it's 35 and people just are zip, 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 me. zip, and you're going 35. So worship God with your foot. Obey Him. Obey the Lord. Absolutely right. And that's the that's the right way to do it. It's the right attitude to have. You know, I. I 100% when I go over the speed limit, I, I know that I shouldn't do it. I know I shouldn't because this is what the Lord has ordained in his word. Right. Okay. Have you ever gotten a speeding ticket there? Um, no, I've, I've got a, a ticket when I was in high school. I went through a red light right over at uh, no, Birchwood now. And uh, let's see, I got a ticket out in, uh, um, not Arizona. Yeah, Arizona. When I took my kids to the Grand Canyon, I think those were the only tickets I've ever gotten. Never got oh no no yeah no they're there oh they're all over the place yeah yeah just go to 7-eleven i take care of 7-eleven every morning there's 20 cop cars there every that's the most heavily defended food palace in the world i i you would not want to hey i'm good let's go rob 7-eleven on csq this morning no 
I'm saying there are cops all over and they're sitting there. They eat more donuts. I can't believe how many donuts they eat every morning. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, you got to be careful out there. Anyway, 13.4. For he is God's servant to do, to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He's, he is God's servant, agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Okay, now imagine Paul thinking this. Yeah, in jail. In jail, as he's about to lose his head. You know what? The Lord ordained me to be here. I've served the Lord. I've served God rather than man. He has been ordained to take care of me as a miscreant within society, and I'm going to die because of it. Hey, that is what Paul understood was correct. As tough as that is for us to understand, he wrote these words, and I'm sure he probably thought about them the night before he was executed. Anyway, verse 4 starts with, Four, to show the continued explanation of the previous verses. He's speaking of the governing authorities of verse 1 and the rulers of verse 3. Whoever our leader is, in whatever land, and whatever time in history, this is what the individual Paul now speaks of for us. This individual had been appointed by God to minister to you for good, as Paul writes. He is the protector of the land, he's the defender of the judicial system, and he's the one responsible for the infrastructure and so on. Every road that's out there, he's the one that's got to ultimately make the decision or somebody under him that he is appointed. Without leaders, society breaks down into anarchy. Let's go out to Seattle and you'll see that every day. Continuing, Paul notes next that based on the leader's position for us in doing good, if you do evil, be afraid. That follows logically. A leader is appointed for the good of the society, and when someone is hindering that good end, he has every reason to be afraid of the leader's wrath. He is the bearer of the sword, symbolizing the one who wields the policing and military power. When you have the sword in the old time, you were the, nowadays it's a gun, right? Or it might be an army tank or whatever it is, but he's using the sword as the emblem of the authority. And he does not bear the sword in vain, he writes. The sword is an emblem of power and death, okay? It is, or I'm sorry, the sword is an emblem of death, power, and death. It isn't a tool used for chopping wood. Instead, it is an implement used for taking life. The power and authority the ruler has been entrusted with will be used to ensure the continued, uninterrupted furtherance of society, or he will use the sword for corrective measure. Okay, like I say, in some, some uh, you go to England and all they have is those nightsticks. They don't have guns when the police walk around, right? They took away all their guns. So now what do they have to do when they have an incident? They got to call out the military and they bring in the big guns. It's just, yeah, well, whatever. It is what it is. But uh, uh, in the Old Testament, we read in the Bible, we read the term the edge of the sword. Does anybody know what it is in the Hebrew? The mouth of the sword, right? And so, in other words, the sword is a devouring instrument. Like the soul of a man, when you use the sword, the mouth eats away the soul. He's dead. Okay, so you get the symbolism. It's much more rich in the Hebrew than it is in the English. Anyway, um, as noted in verse 1, there is a point where facing the sword is expected. That is when our allegiance to God is usurped by a human ruler. The exiles from Babylon were faced with such a dilemma in Daniel chapter 3. Remember that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they stood on the side of the Lord, even in the face of death, right? However, this is the exception and not the rule. Apart from our allegiance to God, we are instructed to live and work within the confines of the rule under which we reside. 
perfect example. Let me take it. I hope I got the right verse this time. I'm going to take it to Jeremiah 29, and I think I've got the right one. As a matter of fact, I recognize the verse, but Jeremiah 29 says, this is what he told him to do. I'm going to take you back. Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is verse 4, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, to whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. He's writing the people that are in captivity because of the sins of their people back in Israel. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Now, this is the Babylonians who went in and killed all kinds of people, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, took the people captive, and he's telling them these things. He says, take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may not be in, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And here's what he says in verse seven, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and to pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. Now imagine that. This is the people that came in and conquered the Jewish nation, the people of God. They don't have any right to do that. We're the people of God. They came in and it, they obviously didn't read their Bible because God says, I'm going to use them as judgment against you because they were the sinners. And he used somebody that was less righteous than them, supposedly, to destroy them and take them captive. And he says, pray for them. Pray for their continuance because in seeking their peace, you will have peace. Huh? That's what Paul's saying right here in the book of Romans. Okay, so um, we're going to be down there 70. Yeah, they're going to be there 70 years. You might as well make the best of it and not get your head cut off in the process. So uh, the reason is restated for us to understand clearly, according to Paul, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. God is the one who establishes, builds up, and tears down societies. And he is the one who places every position in exactly that position that he determined. Remember Acts 17, 26 through 28 that I read you a minute ago. He made all men from one blood. Then he says he appointed their times and their places of dwelling so that they might seek him. He's not far, you no, know, he's not far from them or whatever. Uh, let me read it again because it's such a pretty passage. Anyway, don't want to misquote it. What's it? Yeah, he's exactly. Yeah, that's. Hang on, let me read both. I'm going to start in 26 again. Um, and he made made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. God created Adam. We're all the seed of Adam. We are his offspring. Okay, so there you go. Um, and let's see, Acts 17, 28. Because these are biblical truths, we only strive against what he has ordained when we strive against the life and position in which we have been placed. In the end, by subverting proper rule and authority, we can expect our leaders to execute wrath on us if we practice such evil. Now, think this through. You do something wrong, you go to jail, and you meet Christ. Did that not serve God's purpose? I would say it did. And then when you're in jail, what do you do? You've met Christ, what do you do? You Tell help. people about Jesus. You help Paul if you're Onesimus. Well, that's right. If you're Onesimus, <laughs> you help out Paul. That's right. But you go out and you tell people about Jesus, and all of a sudden you've got people. I was reading something, uh, I don't want to get the wrong country, Guatemala, or one of the countries where MS-13 is. And all these people are in jail down there, right? And guess what they're doing right now in jail? Just read it this morning. 
reading the Bible, having Bible studies. These are people that have been killing people, cutting off heads, cartels, and all that. And now they're in jail, worshiping the Lord. That's where the best place for them. And if they got out, they may fall away from that. But as long as they're in prison, at least they're serving the Lord. So good comes out of bad, even in places where you would least expect it. Just read it this morning. Um, let's see your life application. If you are unhappy with your leaders, then work within the legal framework. I wish I wish our government would figure this out with our current president, right? Within the legal framework of your society to get them out of the leadership position. We didn't try to usurp our previous president. We wanted him out. We, we cast our votes. He was elected a second time and nobody threw a fit. Nobody made up a bunch of lies and tried to get him out of there. They just simply, well, some people on YouTube say things that are crazy, but whatever. Anyway, there was no attempt to overthrow what had occurred. It was an election and the guy won. As soon as we get the guy that won in here, it has been nothing but disaster. Yeah, but this is contrary to what the Lord would speak. And it shows you who's on the outs. What did that one lady out in uh, California say? She's God's appointed instrument to get Trump out of office, right? Absolutely crazy. Maxine Waters. Yeah, absolutely crazy. She's California, right? Yeah, okay. Absolutely crazy. She thinks she's doing the Lord's work. She couldn't be any further from the Lord at this point. I just don't understand it, these people. They're completely depraved in their thinking. Anyway, it is what it is. Um, so if you work in an illegal or subversive manner to ask your leaders, then you're opening yourself up to whatever wrath is determined upon you. And I hope it comes on them rather soon because it's just getting tiring, but whatever. Okay, 13.5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authority, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Conscience sake. It, it shows you. The people that have a conscience that don't do the things that they would like to do. I'm sure half of the country would have liked to have done what they're doing to us right now four years ago. They didn't do it, right? They just accepted it and they went on. Conscience sake, these people have no conscience, okay? The further we get away from the word of God, the less we're going to have a conscience, the less we're going to be obedient within society, the less we're going to care about our fellow man or the baby in the womb or any of these other things. It is just as apparent as it could be. Anyway, therefore is given, the word therefore is given to sum up the, uh, sum up what has been stated in verse 1-4. It should be noted that the term God is used six times in chapter 13 and all six are in connection with the concept of the rule of human government. This rule was established after, after, when was the government dispensation established? Come on. No, 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 no. After the, it's called the flood of Noah. Yes, okay, there you go. Somebody got it. Okay, it's after the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 9, and it has continued on since then. That is the workings of the world. I did it on that one one thing on the board. Government stretches over the time of promise. It stretches over the time of law. It stretches over the time of the dispensation of grace. Government is what God has ordained for the world during the dispensations of time. It's its own dispensation. It didn't work out in a certain way. And because of that, while it's going on in the rest of the world, God made a avenue, a different avenue. And what did he do? He gave a promise to Abraham. And then from there, he gave the law to show that we needed something greater than the law. And then Christ came. And then it, the dispensations, if you look at how they're laid out, are so perfectly arranged. 
And while all this is still going on, all of these other things God is doing, government is still functioning as God told the world to do. Okay? It's just the way it is. So um, it was established after the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 9. It has continued on since then. The covenant has never been revoked. And so in addition to our duties, we have the additional responsibility to human governments which are appointed over us. Oh, I know why you were thinking of the Tower of Babel. It's because government was established. And what did they do? They didn't do it, right? Instead, they all clumped up in one little place. And they said, we're going to build a tower up to God, right? So he said, this is not what I have ordained. I've ordained for you people to go out and to fill up the world and to establish governments. And they didn't. And so what did he do? He changed the lip the tongues, right? And then he spread them out. And from there, people's eyes changed a little bit and they became a people group. And then this people's group uh, skin changed a little bit and they went up here and this people's uh, skin changed a little and they went over here. And that's why you have in Australia, you've got the Aborigines, right? They've got dark skin, but blonde hair, right? And then you've got this group of people over here that has red skin and they don't have any hair on their face at all, which amazes me. And, you know, so you've got all of these people groups that have genetically matched and they become their own people groups and they're all over the world. This is what God has ordained, right? And how do we know that this could have happened in 5,000 years? It's because type in sometime uh, a white couple with black baby or black couple with white baby. Happens all the time. Doesn't happen a lot, but I mean, it, and if you type it in, you're going to see couples that have never had any, we'll say, white in that black stream and they have a white baby or vice versa. And it, it just happens because there are genetic mutations and it, it just type it into the internet. You'll see two white parents with a black baby. It just happens. They prove by DNA that the father is the father, etc. Yeah, it is. It's awkward. But guess what? It can happen that quickly. And when God ordains that something happens here, what happens? This group of people says, well, we're a little different. We're going to move over here. Right. And so the people groups move and very slowly. But sure enough, they turn into their own people groups and they move to these different areas. I have no problem with that. This is what the Lord ordained. And when you're told, you know, you're speaking your own individual language and you're told to go out into the world and I don't understand them. So I'm going to walk with you guys for a while. And after 150 years, you don't look at all like each other anymore. You have different attitudes. You're doing different dances at each other's weddings. And so you separate a little more. The thing, think of this. Think of Germany and France right next to each other. Do they speak the same language? Absolutely not. A German, unless they learn each other's language, they're not even close, right? You've got, you've got all of these countries and they're all within just miles of each other. And they're their own individual cultures. Some of them wear lederhosen in Germany and some in Germany wear something else, but they still speak German. But they're all the same culture with their own little enclaves. And then you get just right over a border and they speak an entirely different language, right? And that is the way it's been for eons. It's not like it's just, well, we, this is what God has ordained. And this is what they are trying to undo in the world today. They're trying to do away with what God has ordained so we can get back to Babel. Okay. Anyway, um, where was I? Uh, what verse are we on? Six, five. Okay. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, oh yeah. The covenant has not been revoked. And so in addition to our duties to God, we have the added responsibility to human governments appointed over us. And because of this, you must be subject, as Paul says, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Paul just told us that the appointed ruler does not bear the sword in vain. 
and so we should be responsible citizens in order to avoid his wrath. But even more, because he is God's appointed minister, we have the added reason of being subject for conscience sake. In other words, if we rebel against the duly established government, then we rebel against what God has ordained. We, in essence, work against what our conscience should be subject to. An interesting thought then arises. If we are to be subject to our rulers, then how can we expect governments to change? Because they do, in fact, change. A prime example would be the American Revolution. If the colonists were to be subject to their government, were they then in violation of what God ordained when they revolted against the king? The answer is no, because the leaders of the colonies signed their names on the Declaration of Independence. By signing their names, they established a new government with the intent of separating from the old. Those who vowed allegiance to the new government after the signing of the Declaration were now subject to that new government. However, it should be noted that if their cause failed, those who served the ties of the old government would have been punished for their actions. Such wasn't the case, and so those who are citizens of America today cannot be held to the governing rule of England. Now, it is interesting. You think that they signed their names before things started out. They said, we are committing our posterity to a new rule. Yes. That's what's going on in our country today. Well, that's right. That's, yeah, that's so right. How are, we not to, how are we not to stand against our government? As I said, the government is going to either prevail or something okay. new is going to come along. Okay, but if somebody goes out and they sign a declaration saying, I am no longer a part of the United States of America, we'll say Texas does it. It now comes to what is God ordained? Is God going to ordain that Texas becomes its own country? Or is he going to say, no, this country is going to take him over because he establishes rulers, he sets them up and he brings them down. So if they sign a declaration of separation from the United States and they prevail, that was God's intent. If not, then they have disobeyed. Okay, and God will rectify that situation. We just have to figure out, in the end, God knows. And, it, you know, so we have to just be careful in the process of attempting to do our best first, always, to honor the Lord. And then after that, you know, how are we going to do You know, here's something, perfect example of this happened two weeks ago. There's a perfect example of it. The people of California. Oh, yeah. The people of California, under the laws of the Constitution of California, submitted a proposition to bring to vote in California to divide the state into three entities. That was following the law of the land. That was legal, it was just, and it was right. And the California Supreme Court turned it down against the people's will. That was in violation of what God would have ordained because they used the law to allow that to happen, okay? So if the people overthrew the, uh, the Ninth Circus Court, hey, you know what? I would have no problem with that at all because they have been the ones who have usurped the will of the people as the Constitution, it says, allows. There you go. So we just have to, you know, it, these things, there's no easy answer to these things, right? There isn't. I, I'll give you another example. My wife is from the Southern Islands of Japan. They had their own king. They had their own culture. Now they're a part of the country of Japan, right? They still speak their own language, though, don't they? They have their own culture. They have their own yeah. things that they do. They also speak Japanese, but they have their own thing. God has ordained that the people of Okinawa would be Okinawans, and they still are. 
even though the people have tried to override that and have tried to change it, they still are. There's a group of people up in North Japan called the Ainus. Is that how you pronounce it? They're their own people. They're their own culture, but they are within the people of Japan. Hey, this is how it's worked out, and God has been working it out, and it continues to work out. Well, the colonists we, had something going for them. Oh, this sure. Was, uh, you know, mostly saying that, okay, we don't believe the ancient church. We believe in the reformed church that everyone's like. Absolutely. And, and, you know, they were persecuted, so they left, and they said, okay, well, God is on our side, I guess. Eventually it worked out. It was, so yeah, it's... eventually it worked out for the good. That's right. But that took that wasn't just a sudden decision. As he no. said, that went from eons of people leaving their countries, coming over here, uniting into their own country, etc. It wasn't something that just happened. It wasn't just a revolution. It was something that took time and a lot of care and thought, and it was obvious what God was doing there. Now that we look back on it, I don't know how obvious it was back then, but we got time for one more verse if we go quick. Six. This is also why you pay taxes. The oh, dang it. <laughs> For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Oh, I hate that when that happens. In the previous verse, one avenue concerning the change of governments was looked at. There are many ways in which governments change. Coup d'etat, elections, overthrow by attacking enemies, and so on. They're all common ways that changes in political landscapes may occur. Another one is implosion through overtaxing of the people and abuse of the taxes which were levied on them. This is where the United States is today, and I typed this two years ago, and we've even got it worse now. Although the implosion hasn't happened yet, the meal is already over, the cake has been served, and her fall is inevitable unless drastic measures are taken. A self-inflicted wound due to greed for power and control. And it has come about in no small part through the taxing system which is set in place. Having said that, and despite that, Paul instructs us that it is our obligation to pay taxes. He uses the word for. It explains the previous thought, which is that we are to be subject to the ruling authorities. Because we are, and because we are the ones who levy taxes, we are to pay what they levy, or they are the ones and Paul gives the reason, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Their job, even if it means financially ruining the lives of citizens under them, is ultimately to meet God's purposes. If America implodes, it is because God said it is time for America to be taken out of the picture. Mm -hmm. When it happens, it happens. All we can do is say, this is the Lord's will. Okay, it is God who sets up nations and it is he who gives them either good leaders or crummy leaders. And this is seen again and again in scripture as Israel and her surrounding neighbors are highlighted. When a nation is obedient to God, he gives them good leaders who properly shepherd the people. And when they turn from him, mock him, mock his word, he gives them crummy leaders. In a constitutional republic like the United States, this means that the wound truly is self inflicted. And yet God knew before the choice was made that it would be. In a nation such as the U.S., having an ungodly leader means that a vast portion of the electorate chose that ungodly person. God's foreknowledge of this is used in the overall plan of nations as he has ordained. Therefore, when a political party comes into power which ignores the Constitution, redistributes the earnings of those who work to those who are indolent, shun God and promote perversion, there's still no excuse to not pay the taxes which have been levied, no matter how exorbitant. God's plans are being worked out even through such wicked people. 
One important lesson of the Bible is that even though God doesn't author evil, he can work with the evil we perpetrate to meet his good end. So when you get your tax bill and see that it is unfair from your pers perspective, pay it as you should. You are a citizen of the nation you belong to, and the money, though seemingly wasted, and certainly it is, is having its intended effect. Life application, pay your taxes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, lessons of uh, the book of Romans. And yes, they are difficult lessons. They're often way, way beyond our ability to comply with fully, even though we are supposed to. And there are times where we just, we struggle with the issues that we're presented with, but you have presented them. This is your word and you have instructed these things for mm -hmm. our building up, our edification and for our obedience. And so help us as Christians to be obedient to the ruling authorities that are placed over us. And because we're talking about ruling authorities today, I would like to take a moment and pray for our ruler in this land today, who our president, who is trying to get this ship turned around and to return the power to the people as it was originally uh, mandated in the Constitution. I would pray that we would support him, that you would be with him, keep him from the evil which is hemming him in on all sides, and give him the will and the stamina and the power to overcome these people and to prevail, if that is your will. And we certainly want to pray for your will in all things. And when we do, we'll do it in Jesus' name because he is our Lord and our Savior. And we thank you for his work in our lives. And we praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, the one who is excited when he calls all of his servants in for their update is the devil. He is loving what's going on. Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is. The devil is having a great time with this one. Let me back this up and we're going to say goodbye to everybody here. We've got to go to break. Break.